You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Thirty-six days. Thirty-six days. That's that's how long it is until Christmas. I know that a lot of you might not know those days, but I can assure you that some younger people may be seated next to you do. Kids often highly anticipate the arrival of Christmas. It's not so much because they're looking forward to the reunion of their cousins or perhaps the spread that they'll, a food that they'll get a chance to eat. It's because they're waiting for the gift, if not the gifts. They are anticipating. They have made their requests known repeatedly, and they're hoping somebody has heard them, and they're excited. 36 days from today, that day is arriving. I remember what it was like being young. I remember one time wanting, asking, dare I even say begging, that my mom would give me this incredible Hulk stretch monster figure. Man, I really wanted it badly, and you know what? I got it. Seems silly now, but at that time, it was like my life had just went to the next level. I stretched that thing endlessly, was amazed by how it would retract back. I would stretch it again and make all the sounds I imagined the Hulk would be making as his Arms are somehow being extended beyond reasonableness. And next year, February 20, uh, in February of 2024, is leap year. Uh, for those of you who don't know what leap year means, that's uh, time every year, not, excuse me, every year, every four years that we have February 29th. And normally, February only has 28 days. And there are going to be people who are going to be born on February 29th. Some of you maybe were born on February 29th, and your birthday is next year, and you've been waiting for four years to celebrate your birthday. You've not been waiting for 36 days to get a present. You've been waiting for four years for someone to finally say to you, oh, happy birthday. Sure, you've had some honorary birthdays. You know, you've maybe snuck it in on February 28th and maybe put it in on March 1st. But the reality was the day had not arrived until it finally did. Four years of anticipation, and there it finally was at last. But what would it be like to wait for something that was not 36 days away, that was not four years away? What would it be like to wait for something that you have been anticipating for 40 years? That's, that's a different kind of wait. And that's a different kind of anticipation. In fact, depending on your calendar, it might not actually be 40 years. It actually could be, by some calculations, a couple of hundred years of your anticipation. But the day has arrived. You've thought about it. Your parents thought about it. Your grandparents talked about it. It's finally here. If you open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3, we learn of that day. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Grace Church. 
My name's Eric Bancroft, and I have the privilege to be one of the pastors here at Grace Church. We are making our way through the book of Joshua. You're not far behind, so this is a great time to be with us. But the truth is, any Sunday is a great time to be with us. We are in the book of Joshua, the sixth book in the Bible. If I say turn to Joshua, understandably, you might turn to the person to your left or to your right and go, are you Joshua? Are you Joshua? Who's Joshua? Joshua is a name of a man in the Bible that has a book named after him. It's a story, though, not just about one man. It's a story about many people, people who are known as Israelites. And the reason this date is significant is because of what's actually taking place in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Joshua. That's exactly where we're going to be this morning, this sense of anticipation. Where are we headed? Well, let me just tell you the main point of what we're going to learn from Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. The main point for God's people today is to remember, the Lord leads you, don't forget it. The Lord leads you, don't forget it. Now, to kind of set the scene, if you will, you have what's taking place in Joshua 1, a transition of leadership. Moses to Joshua, Joshua commissioning by God, from God, the people of Israel to be strong and courageous, to be also walking in the word. Then Joshua sends out spies. They meet Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. Remarkable interaction there. I encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you've not two weeks ago. But we'll just simply pick up at the very end of Joshua chapter 2, verse 24, the spies who come back said in verse 24 to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the lands melt away because of us. That's a promise of a strong belief of what's to come, but you still got to take action. You still got to actually move from point A to point B. You actually still got to get up in the morning and do something. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And so for our purposes this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, and the sense of anticipation has finally arrived. And in doing so, we're going to look at and learn four lessons this morning from Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Four lessons. The first lesson is God is working, don't miss it. God is working, don't miss it. Follow along as I read Joshua chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. We'll stop there for our purposes for right now. Now, a lot of you may be new to the Bible, new to the scene that's unfolding here, so let me just kind of say it in summary fashion. You've got the second generation of the Israelites 
who are on, if you will, the, the west side of the Jordan River, excuse me, the east side of the Jordan River. There's about two million of them. And they have got a report back from two of them that have come back and reported to Joshua, hey, where we're called to go, we should go. God has provided that land for us. And so now the preparations have been made and the day has arrived. And what's so significant in the text is the reality of what God wants these people to repeatedly see. And what I want you to recognize is what is introduced several times in verses 1 to 6 becomes a repeating observation throughout chapter 3. Wherever you see God's people in this context of the text, you always see the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, interestingly, in these three, excuse me, in these two chapters, Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4, you have the reference to the Ark of the Covenant 17 different times explicitly with an additional four added more times, for a total of 21 times, even in the pronouns being referenced, 21 times in two chapters, the Ark of the Covenant is being referenced. Why is this? Well, it's like a parent who speaks to their child and keeps repeating themselves, and the child sometimes rolls their eyes like, I get it. And the parent's like, but do you really? I feel like if you did, I wouldn't have to repeat myself as often as I do. What's happening here is the recognition that the very Ark of the Covenant was a recognition of God's presence with God's people. Now, the Ark, again, is strange to you and your modern-day sensibilities. I understand that. You can't go somewhere today to Israel, some other part of the world, though there are some Ethiopian Coptic Christians who claim that they actually have the Ark of the Covenant in hiding in a church that no one can see, including the guy who's guarding the church. Convenient. But I promise it's there, they'll say. What is, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, we see earlier in the Old Testament, the Ark was actually not very big. It was a box, about three foot, nine inches long, and about two feet, three inches wide and tall. It was covered in gold, both inside and out. It was topped with a lid of pure gold, and on top of that lid had two angels. These angels were facing each other, with either end going of their wings over the cover. Their wings stretched out and upward, nearly meeting directly about the cover. The ark was carried, not to be touched, it was carried by poles that were placed through rings attached to the ark on each side. The people of God understood that this ark was not God, it was the representation of God. It was a recognition of God's presence with them, and it was continued to see that. The ark represented to these people that God was sovereign, that God was holy, that God was just, that God was merciful. Even today, we had the reading of Hebrews in the New Testament. It refers back to some of that Old Testament imagery of the great high priest, Jesus himself, interceding for his people. What I want you to see in verses 1 to 6, and it comes up again later, is this recognition that where they go, God goes, but not just God goes with them or God goes beside them or God goes behind them, God goes in front of them. There is a repeating reference to this idea about the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord being carried by the priests and they shall follow it. Now, some have debated is this distance being referenced in verse 4 because of the holiness of the Ark. Well, that's certainly true, but it's actually believed that with a people that are this large in size, 
that from a distance they need to see it so they can understand where they're actually to go and also that it's God who leads them. Now, where are they? We know who they are. We know what they're doing, but where are they? Well, it says there they came to the Jordan in verse 1. The Jordan Valley between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, still there today, you can go see it, many people do, varies in its breadth, the Jordan Valley, from three miles to 14 miles. Uh, within this valley, there's this river floodplain. It, it, it can be 200 yards to a mile wide. The current was strong because of the drop in elevation, rushing water, if you will. What's interesting to note is even the significance of the case of the water. If you would, jump ahead to verses 14 and following. When the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, and then look at this parenthetical comment. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, verse 16. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city is beside Zetharin. Now, does it kind of strike you as odd? Like, why this parenthetical note about the time of harvest? Well, it's setting a scene for us here. A scene that's recognizing the overwhelming odds are against them the challenges that they're about to face. This is not some like, hey, uh, roll up your pants, put your possessions in a bag on the top of your head, wade through, we can do this if we link arms. Oh, friends, no, no. No, no, the, the readers of Joshua need to understand like you and I need to understand today, that's not the scene before them. It is, as it says there, overflowing all its banks through the time of harvest. The reality at this time of year is that it's probably a mile wide and covering a mass of tangled brush and jungle growth. Why is this detail so important? Because God wants Israel to know it is virtually impossible to do what we're about to do. Unless, of course, God does a God thing that he seems to specialize in doing for his people all the time. And that's exactly what takes place here. You can sort of see and feel the sense of anticipation about what happens. But notice what's being said here and how he describes it. The, the way in which the people interact, it says in verse 16, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. Verse 17, now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly, look at the description, on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Even the adjective, they didn't just stand on ground. If, you, if you're in a riverbed that's been freshly evacuated of all of its river, all of its water rather, you're still standing in mud. You're still having a hard time not losing your shoes or in this case your sandals when you step in it and pull out of it. Not the case here. It is dry ground. At every turn, every provision has been made for them, displaying the power of God for them. 
Now, this might seem remarkable, maybe even to some of your sensibilities, maybe a little too remarkable. As if perhaps this seems sensationalized, maybe a little dramatized, maybe a little bit, you know, over the top and hard to believe. But friends, we're not talking about modern engineering. We're talking about divine intervention. A God who creates the world, and from the very beginning of time, the very opening page of Scripture, God exists, makes no defense of his existence, no sense of apologetics and four-point lesson to kind of make a defense for himself. He simply declares it to be so. Furthermore, he declares all of existence to be so by speaking into existence. In other words, whenever you have God, you have miracles. What's remarkable is to see God's miracles for God's people how he has worked in their life for their good and also for his glory. I mean, just consider that by way of reflection for yourself. How has God displayed his power in your life that is undeniably his work? What has God done in your life that is an invitation from him to worship him? For the Israelites, it would have blown their mind. It would have absolutely blown their mind, not just because of what was taking place, but how it was taking place. The significance of this. But notice what it says back in verse 5. It says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There was a continued repeating tension in the text, not only what God would do, but what they were called to do. Not only what God would do miraculously and undeniably and convincingly, but what they were also called to do personally and responsibly. The text in verse 5 talks about the idea of consecrating themselves. For them at that time, culturally, that would have meant the washing of their clothes, the abstaining from sexual activity before with their spouses. They would have been prepared and ready. And notice this isn't a call to simply witness the work of God with no responsibility. They were called to take responsibility as well. Nothing has changed today. We don't simply sit back, offer a prayer to God, God, work in my life, while we sit back with folded arms waiting for a miracle to take place. God calls us to take responsibility according to his word as he has spoken. That's the first lesson. God is working. Don't miss it. The second lesson that we want to see in the text is that God provides leadership. Don't doubt it. God provides leadership. Don't doubt it. Look at verse 7. Uh, The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, that, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Verse 9, and Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. It's a remarkable thing to see here because as we saw a few weeks ago, go back two chapters of Joshua chapter 1. Look at Joshua chapter 1 verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. 
It's quite a promise he's making. He makes the same promise again here in Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. But then as this event unfolds, look what happens. Go to chapter 4, verse 14. As all this took place, verse 14, and on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. This is important to recognize. A lesson we, of course, saw a few weeks ago, but we need to return back to it again because the people of God are being called to go back to it again by way of reminder. Even Joshua himself is being called to go back to it again. Why? Because we often can wander and doubt based upon the leadership that God puts in front of us. Did God really? I mean, you have to imagine amongst a crowd of two million people, amongst a bunch of people like that, people like, I didn't pick you, Joshua. You wouldn't have been my choice. In fact, quite honestly, Joshua, I don't find you to be that impressive. I've heard some stories about you, but I don't know if they're not just embellished. You somehow, maybe by political positioning, put yourself in a place next to Moses where he maybe liked you, but I doesn't mean because he likes you that I like you. You can imagine with a crowd this big that there are certainly going to be people who are cynical at best and doubters and rebellious at worst to say, yeah, it might be for Moses, but you're not for me. There's an important lesson here that Joshua has to be reminded of and the people of Israel have to be reminded of. It's important for both of them. For Joshua, it's important that he feels secure in his position. For Israel, it's important because them, they need to be confident in Joshua's competence under God. It wasn't the exaltation of man's ability. It was the recognition of God's recognition of others that he would use to serve. Was Joshua needing somebody to provide sacrifices on the offering for his sin as we saw in Israel? For sure. But the significant here is that recognize the importance of Joshua as a leader and the people unfollowing Joshua as a leader. They needed to have that sense of confidence. Why? Because what's coming on the other side of the Jordan River? Lots of battles. And I tell you what, everybody likes leadership when things are easy. But when things go hard, you start to question it and start to doubt it. You start to believe that you could do otherwise better than what you're having and receiving. I think it's an important lesson for us even to consider today. How important is it to trust the leadership that God has undeniably appointed over us? Whether it be in the context of our households, the parents that God's given us as children, the spouses God has given us in our marriages? What about the citizens of our country? There's always ways by which we can find somehow the opportunity to justify disobedience and disrespect. I mean, it's really true in our political landscape. You pretty much could just divide the country in half to make it simple for the sake of representation. Half the people say, I didn't pick him. And another election cycle, the other half of people say, I didn't pick him. And if I didn't pick him, I shouldn't have to respect him. Clearly a misunderstanding of what the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, where God in the mystery of his ways, using our fallen practices, using other sinners just like us, he says, I picked him. Well, that changes the conversation a lot. 
right? I mean, parents who leave, go out for a night, for a date night, or out with some friends, and they choose the babysitter. And the child looks at the babysitter and is like, I didn't pick you. You're not my parent. I don't have to go to bed when you said to go to bed. I don't have to eat what you're telling me to eat. And the babysitter can kind of feel like, well, it's kind of true in that you didn't pick me, but it's also true that your parent did. And by the power vested in me, by the authority of Florida, no, your parent, I hereby declare it's bedtime. Some babysitters have had to use the nuclear option and say, you don't want me to call your mom or dad. Whether it be in the silliness of bedtimes with their children or in the more difficult landscape of our own political environment as citizens or in the challenges of sometimes our own marriages or in the context of our local churches or crossing a river that seems impossible, both leaders and the people have to be assured by the Lord. The Lord has raised them for such a time as this. And how to see that? It's not a question of trusting in infallible people. All people are fallible. All people are sinful. It's trusting in a wise and even at times mysterious God. In the case of Joshua, to be commended, he was indeed a godly man. He was a man of faith. So you have to imagine following him would not be as hard as it otherwise would be with other leaders that God could have chosen. It takes us to our third lesson that we see in the text. Not only is God working, don't miss it. Not only is God provides leadership, don't doubt it. But also thirdly, God has done greater, don't panic. Go back to chapter 3. Look at what it says here in verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, draw, and he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, verse 13, and when the souls of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from, the land, from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, can I just put on the personality of what it would have been like to be one of those priests carrying the ark. I'm like, man, I hope this is going to work. I hope this is going to work. I hope this is going to work. We've been told by Joshua, put our feet in the water, and the water is going to stop. I don't know. And what you see here is that Joshua says, before it happens, I want you to interpret what's about to happen because of a greater lesson I want to teach you. If God can do this, God can do a lot more than simply this. And this is exactly why he references these people. They haven't even encountered the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. They have not even seen them. They've only heard of them. They literally have never in their entire life seen them. They only know of them by reputation. 
That's what's waiting from the other side. He's like, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's just step right where, where God has called us to right now and watch God work there and know that when God works there, he'll work there in the future. This is what Dale Ralph Davis calls theologic. Theologic, this idea of God logic. Now, let's see an example of this. Keeping your fingers in Joshua, go, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans, New Testament book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Come now to the book of Romans as we see it. Romans chapter 8. Verse 32, if you don't have it, we're going to put it on the screen for you so that you're not lost here. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, Paul says to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's basically saying, to the Christians in Rome, listen, if, if God doesn't keep his son back, but he gives his son as a sacrifice to pay for your sins, if you're wondering, as all people at any time, sooner or later wonder, does God love me? It's a fair question and a very compelling answer. If you ever wonder if God loves you, look at the cross and find God's son being crucified as an expression of his love. Arguably the most famous verse in all the world, John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul, later reminding Christians in the city of Rome as he writes to them, says, listen, if God gave his son to you, there's nothing greater to give. He's given the greatest to you. This is an example of theologic. Now, bring this back, if you would, to Joshua. Why is this so important? Because he knows his audience. If you go to the left in your Bibles from Joshua, you come to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, <laughs> go with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy, oh, excuse me, I said Deuteronomy, Exodus. Go further back in your Bibles. Second book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 14. It's the 1.0 version of the crossing of bodies of water. It's that been there, done that. Exodus 14. Uh, this is the parents of the people we read about in Joshua 3. Here's the parents' storyline. This is the songs that they sing about. Exodus chapter 14. You probably even have the title in your Bible. If you're looking at a copy of the Bible, it says, Crossing the Red Sea. And basically, after they've gotten out of Egypt, then Pharaoh's heart changes. He comes after the people. The people cry out to God in verse 10. And he says in verse 13, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you will only have to be silent. So in verses 15 and following, they cross through the Red Sea. As they get through it, then the, the sea collapses on all of the military army of the Egyptians. They're all drowned. And then they have a worship service, Exodus 15. 
It says at the very end of chapter 14, verse 31, the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and all his servant Moses. Oh, man, that's, you could not say the popularity is any higher. The polls for Moses could not have been any higher. It was 100% poll rating. And man, they loved the God. I mean, they just loved God. They, they bust out on a song. Moses and the people of Israel, chapter 15, verse 1, sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The very end, verse 18, it says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Man, it is like, Summer camp on steroids. People are like, it doesn't get any better. We got the best leader. We got the best God, the only God. We're indestructible. I love being a follower of Yahweh. Man, phenomenal. Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Ironic which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. So much for popularity. And Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> what in the world? Talk about a thankless people and talk about a forgetful people. It literally is just the previous revelation of God's word in chapter 14 and 15, and yet chapter 16 is like it never took place. Ask yourself the question, what great things has God already done in my life prior to today that should give me faith to trust him today with the smaller things and the future to come? What is it that you run the risk of forgetting that they were forgetting? Friends, let's be honest. Thanks to the leadership of Pastor Chris Juday, Kayleen, and the other musicians, the scripture reading and the prayer. We have been worshiping the Lord this morning. It has been triumphant. It has been awesome. We have been literally shouting at each other. Thanks to Christian Day's instruction. You know what's going on. We're going hard for Jesus. We're shouting at each other. But no matter how great it is in here today on Sunday, that's no guarantee of what's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow, chapter 16, potentially. Oh, Lord, it was better before I knew you. It would have been better not giving my life to you. Look at the trouble you brought upon me. Look at the challenges in front of me. What's happening in Joshua is he wants to remind them when they come up against future challenges. Again, back to Joshua chapter 3, verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. You shall know that the living God is among you when you've been praying for years to be married and you're still not, when you've been trying for years to be pregnant and you're still not, when Thanksgiving comes this week and it'll be marked by a broken family, not a reunited family, 
When you're trying to find a place that you can afford to rent in Miami and everything seems out of reach financially. When you go to sleep at night in a bed by yourself, reaching for the place that your spouse used to lie next to you until they passed away. When Ileana Formant goes to Jacksonville to care for her sister recovering from surgery, only to find herself in the hospital as well, having open heart bypass surgery. Those are the moments when you and I are tempted to say, can God really get me out of this? Has God forgotten me? And this is why we go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. It says, listen, if God has given his son for you, there's nothing left. Everything is an easier, lesser point. Of course he cares for you. This is why as Christians, we want to continue to lives centered around the gospel. Our great high priest went through the waters of death ahead of us, just as the priests who were carrying the ark did. God has saved us from eternal damnation, the flood of judgment. This is why we have to keep going back to the gospel, because why? We are just like the Israelites who are tempted repeatedly and regularly and embarrassingly to doubt, to fear. For those of you who are here who are not Christians, I love that you're here, and I want you to keep coming back here. You at least get to know the Bible, hearing it for yourself firsthand. You get to meet other Christians who are around here. Hopefully, you find us to be a loving group of people. But let me be very clear what you understand about Christians. Christians are not the people who just, like, never have hard times. Or in having hard times, never doubt God. Oh, no, they struggle. They struggle. But they don't look inward for a sense of motivating hope, some type of new lifestyle habit, some type of life hack, some type of YouTube short that they can watch. They kind of give them a 60 second life improvement tip. No, they've got to go back to the bedrock of truth, God's word, and they got to remind themselves about why something that took place 2,000 years ago with another person has everything to do with them today as an individual. And I would say to you, if you're not a Christian, you need to ask yourself, where do you go? When you challenge, when you feel challenged by your circumstances, how do you have confidence that the God who created you, who out of his grace made you in his image, which is why everybody should be treated with dignity and respect, why do you have such confidence that God would hear you when you pray to him? What does it mean to be a follower of God? What does it mean to trust in his provision? The great high priest, the perfect prophet, the ever-reigning king, prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, his son. It is only through faith in Jesus, his son, and faith alone because of God's grace, alone for his glory, alone, that any one of us is forgiven of our sin. The problem is not simply will you make it through some trial you've got today. The problem is what will happen at the end of your life, sooner or later, expectedly or a long life, and then eventually. Only Christ can offer that assurance. Brings us to the fourth and final lesson. God has saved you. Don't forget it. These chapters are paired together, importantly because of the continuation of the story. I won't go through the entire chapter, but I want to highlight a repeating additional theme that now comes through in chapter 4. Just to get us jump-started, verse 1, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, 
Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And this becomes the introduction of what would be repeatedly referenced. Seven different times in chapter 4, these stones of remembrance are referenced. These stones are referenced, this representation. As we continue to see the reference to the ark, we now have the additional reference to these 12 stones. It comes up there in verse 2, it's again in verse 6, it's again in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 19, verse 21, continually referencing this idea of the stones of remembrance. And we're not left to know what it is that they're supposed to teach. How do a bunch of rocks teach anything? Verse 23. Let's start at verse 22. Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on the dry ground. Verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Psalm 121 verse 2 says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He is basically saying, here's the resume of God. He makes heaven and earth. He'll be, he'll be fine to help me. He'll be fine to help me. But here is one of the things that I want to highlight here. These stones of remembrance, as they're being told to put this up and to refer back to them, it's not just for them, it's for their children. One of the greatest enemies of faith is forgetfulness. One of the greatest enemies of faith is forgetfulness. It's not what you've never learned, it's what you've learned and do not remember. And we understand this. You think about this. This is how we kind of commemorate people's lives and our life. We get tattoos on our body. We put stickers on our cars. We name our kids after individuals, all of which are people that we do not want to forget. God is saying in Joshua chapter 4, build a monument so that you don't forget and that you will be repeatedly called upon by your previous, subsequent generations rather, the children and the grandchildren and on and on. Why are these here that you might tell the story? Now, here's where this gets awfully interesting for today for the Christian sensibility. Do you know what God gives us as Christians today in the New Testament that we would not forget? Surprisingly, it's not the symbol of the cross, which we adorn with pillows and necklaces and other type of representation. The symbol that God gives to the church today to remember is the Lord's Supper. That's literally what he says about the Lord's Supper. Jesus says to himself, do this until I come. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is the God-ordained means by which God's people come together to be reminded of the work that God has done for them, the work that God is doing in the midst of them, as a people together, and the promise of the work that God will yet still do for them as he promises to return for them. 
The Lord's Supper, my friends, are, if you will, your stones of remembrance. It's not what you put on your body or your car. It's not what bookmark you place. Not even the other religious symbols you might choose. The biblical reality for us as Christians is the Lord's Supper teaches us. And you can even hear the kids sitting next to us as those pieces of bread and those cups of wine and juice pass by as the children ask, Mom, what's that? Dad, can I have some? Mom, what does that mean? As we explain to our children with those elements of the Lord's Supper what the gospel is. We have learned that God is working. Do not miss it. We've learned that God provides leadership. Don't doubt it. We've learned that God has done greater. Don't panic. And we've learned that God has saved you. Don't forget it. Roll, Jordan, roll is a Negro spiritual created by enslaved African-Americans. Became well-known among slaves in the United States during the 19th century. In the song, it calls out brothers, preachers, sinners, mourners, seekers, mothers, sisters. And the refrain goes like this. Roll, Jordan, roll. Roll, Jordan, roll. I want to go to heaven when I die to hear Jordan roll. So often in Negro spirituals, they would speak about the Jordan, that opportunity to cross over and to be without suffering. In many songs, the Jordan represented death, a death that was typically seen as a liberation from the harsh realities of slave life. Thus, crossing the Jordan was a theme for going home to restore to a community lost in oppression and slavery and headed to the promised land. But did you know this? Roll, Jordan, roll was actually developed by and influenced by an earlier song by Isaac Watts titled, There is a Land of Pure Delight. And if you would, look on the screen as I read it to you. There is a land of pure delight where saints immortal reign Infinite day excludes the night, and pleasures banish pain. There everlasting spring abides, and never withering flowers. Death like a narrow sea divides that heavenly land from ours. Sweet fields beyond the swelling flood stand dressed in living green. So to the Jews old Canaan stood, while Jordan rolled between. But timorous mortals start and shrink to cross the narrow sea and linger shivering on the brink and fear to launch away. Oh, could we make our doubts remove those gloomy doubts that rise and see the Canaan that we love with unbeclouded eyes? Could we but climb where Moses stood and view the landscaped o'er, not Jordan's stream, nor death's cold flood should fright us from the shore. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.